0: G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Research Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. Though we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. We'd really appreciate it. just a couple of minutes of your time to be able to do this. Today, joining Brian and myself in the studio, we're going to talk to Troy Gibson. We hope you enjoy. We're joined by uh, Dr. Troy Gibson, who's one of our lecturers here in animal welfare science. So thank you, Troy, for uh, for coming along into the glorious studio that we we have here today.
1: Oh, thank you very much well
0: thank you for for, for uh, not having too much duress dress put on you to uh, to come in today um so I'd uh, I'd start by uh, asking everyone really to how how uh, what your a brief biography of like of how you've come to to sit where you're you're doing because obviously I can tell from your accent you know you're not really from around the uh, the home counties I think a bit more in a, in a beautiful country <laughs> uh, a bit uh, a bit in the other hemisphere so how, how do you find yourself here Troy
1: um well oh, dare I say it's a uh, A series of um, mistakes, blind calls, and um, just falling into positions. But no, I I've kind of I'm from New Zealand, so um, that's where I grew up, and I grew up in a very rural, um, you know, environment, and you know, I was always around animals, and I always wanted to do something around animals. So um, you know, I started off with a focus towards agriculture, um, and that kind of morphed more towards the physiology of uh animal welfare and then over time that developed and i got interested into looking at animal welfare um during farming procedures and looking at how we can improve procedures we actually do on the farm animals to actually minimize suffering and then that morphed into working with um, the end of lives of animals and actually trying to improve that and that was mainly done in new zealand but then um The call to do the big OE, as we say in New Zealand, was very strong. And me and my wife made the decision to come over to the UK, probably a bit stupidly, when I was still writing up my PhD. So, um, you know, it was fun, but also stressful. Um, And came to the UK, um, worked for HSBC in the insurance, doing data analysis for a couple of months at the same time as writing on my phd at night so for any phd students i recommend not doing that <laughs> um it's not a good idea doing full-time work and then writing at night and surviving on two hours sleep for three months and i managed to um through contacts i learned of a job that was going here going on here at the rvc so uh, i applied for that and i was lucky enough to get home and i've been at the rvc for well it's just over nine years now um started off the traditional way of doing a postdoc that more morphed it more morphed into um, free postdocs who were happening at the same time and dare I say I was lucky enough or unlucky enough that um, my mentor at the time um, who was uh, who I' been line managed by actually retired and it created a gap in the college where um, there was a space for a U lecturer and I applied for it and got it so as we say the only five years have been history. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's been a good time actually, I've enjoyed my time at the college. That's
0: good, that's good. So, so can I also like, say the, the interest, so if you're brought up in a, in a rural environment, so, so where did that uh, interest in, in animal welfare came from? Was there things that you thought could improve or was there somebody that you, you looked at and thought, oh I want to do their
1: job? Uh, I say, it's not overly interesting, this one, because I I always wanted to do something with animals, but it was more trying to um, improve production systems. It was more the agricultural side of things initially, and that's what the focus was when I went to university. Um, But it was when I was at university and started looking at some of physiology of pain and some of literature involved in that, that I latched on on some of the key players in that field who at that time were based in New Zealand. And... That allowed me to get an understanding of work that has been done and where the gaps were, and after a very brief period working for a pharmaceutical company in New Zealand for a year and a half, I um, went to a different university, so Massey University, where um, some of these key researchers in the field were, so this was Kevin Stafford and David Muller, who um, are still well recognised in the field of animal welfare on farms, and I managed to work with him um, in a, a postdoctoral position and then opportunity came up to do a Masters. Um, the Masters was far too big to be a Masters so it turned into a PhD. So um, it was basically I, I developed an understanding or feeling or interest in animal welfare quite late in my undergraduate studies. Um, and it was mainly via a physiological route that I became interested in animal welfare. But over time, I realised that this is actually now where my passion lies, and that's where my focus has been for, oh, what is it, the last 11, 12, 14 years? I can't remember what it is now. <laughs> so,
0: so what was your uh, PhD, on Troy?
1: Um, my PhD was looking at um, the welfare of cattle during non-stun slaughter, and it was principally focused on actually is the cut itself painful? So we did a lot of what I think is very good science, actually looking at the mechanism of uh, noxious sensory input in cattle and how that was actually modified by different practices. And that was mainly using uh, brain changes, so using the EEG. And we could actually, well, we were the first group, and my PhD was the first case of actually Providing some sort of qualitative and quantitative data that actually suggested or showed that these animals do experience a noxious insult, which would be experienced as pain. And that's been since validated by a couple of research groups um, across the world now. So, you know, it was a very good study to get involved in. And at the time, it was particularly high profile, um, but it was a very interesting study. Okay,
0: and uh, and so what were the what's the 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 fall not the fallout that's probably the wrong thing but what, what what's there been the progress since that in, in that in that particular field?
1: Well, I kind of dip in and out of non-stunned um, slaughter field. So um, my employment here at the RBC initially, most of my focus was trying to improve stunning practices. Um, people often think about um, the issues that animals face during the end of their lives, during stunning and slaughter, and concentrate on non-stunned. But there is an important realisation that some of our stunning techniques aren't always perfect, and they do fail. So there's still quite a lot of work that has to be done on the stunning techniques that we do work on. And and that has been about 80% of my work that I have done over the last um, nine years at the college. On the non-stun side, I've worked on a couple of projects looking at restraint systems. Um, here in the UK we have to use upright restraint. Meanwhile in other parts of Europe um, you're able to use inverted and upright. So I've been involved in a very large project looking at those kind of systems and seeing what have a better systems. And then we did some different funded work a couple of years ago where we were looking at the position of a net cut and trying to um, improve a bleed out as a way of actually making the animals lose consciousness quicker. So dare I say, in the field of non-stunned slaughter, I've now been going towards the approach of um, trying to refine and improve the techniques that are available as opposed to actually what I initially started off with was actually just identifying welfare hazards. Because I think we as veterinarians, as researchers, um, you know, some of these practices will continue to happen, and sometimes for very good reasons, um, but we have to be proactive and see how we can minimize some of the suffering. And we can do that as scientists, but we can also do it by working with different religious communities as well. So um, some of my work is now taken on more of a sociological um, side to it as well. And and
0: could could you elaborate on that, the the sociological side of it as well?
1: Well, it was mainly with regard to the restraint work, because the scientific data was quite um, sketchy about whether um, the different restraint systems were good or bad. I suppose from a scientific viewpoint, they uh, each have their strengths and weaknesses, But the unanswered question is, how does this fit in with the requirements of the different religious communities? Um, And the only way you can actually do that is actually asking. So, you know, we have had meetings with um, leading authorities in the different communities to discuss their viewpoints on the different restraint systems. And there are some systems that just are not appropriate for certain sects or certain um, communities. Meanwhile, there are other ones that are acceptable. So, you know, I found that work fascinating and it was nice to actually be able to work directly with people on what is quite a challenging area. We did similar work also with the net cut position work um, where we had very good engagement with the Muslim community actually looking at the net cut position, whether it could actually be bought out. And dare I say, the background to that was actually us observing um, slaughter practices in other countries, particularly halal slaughter, where some people were doing it, um, so a refined cut, without actually knowing it and knowing they actually were providing better welfare than what some of their um, uh, fellow religious um, uh, members were actually doing in other parts of the world. So, you know, I think that aspect of animal welfare science is very important and we often forget about that. Um, You know, as scientists it's very easy just to focus on the narrow results and getting the publications out there, but it's engagement with the communities to get the message out there and it's not just um, between podcasts or presentations as a way of getting your findings out there. It's actually talking to the stakeholders. So, you know, I now think that's a very important part of the work that I do.
0: And can I ask with this uh, original sort of research in that field that you've done, was there funding from various sort of charities or, or independent funding? And and, and does this, uh, the information that you've uh, provided, feed back somewhere to the legislation? Yeah,
1: well, definitely for that initial work that I did, um, that was actually the work I did in New Zealand. That was funded by Defra here in the UK, and also the um, New Zealand equivalent at the time called MAF, and now it's called the Ministry of Primary Industries. And you know, they had a research, well, they had a uh, a policy question and needed answering, and that's where that research focused in on. And you know, when you think about um, types of research and the impact that they can have and welfare research can often have quite an immediate impact on the welfare of animals so after that work was done and combined with research from other groups and previous research it was actually mandated that well it was not mandated that's not the right word it was um, it was made a requirement that all cattle in New Zealand had to be stunned prior to slaughter so the ability to do non-stunned slaughter for cattle was actually removed in that country now that work has been taken up by other countries now to support their arguments for or against different practices um so it hasn't um, actually has um informed legislation in several countries now
0: that's uh that's that's pretty good It you know not pretty good that's very understated isn't it that's, that's amazing um and uh with that, though, do you, is that sometimes, when you get the legislation in place or or changing practices, do you think that in some people's minds, well, that stops it? We've 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 learned our lessons there. We can't can't do better than that.
1: Yeah, sometimes you do see that, and you know, I don't think that's a very proactive stance. Um, you know, if you take the case of cattle, um, you know, these are the animals that seem to take the longest amount of time to die when you slaughter them without stunning, and you know. Sure, we can identify and say that this is a hazard for cattle, and we have known this is a problem for a long time, Um, but there are other things that we can improve for cattle that are slaughtered in other parts of the world, but also the other species that are slaughtered with or without stunning, because as I said earlier, even some of our stunning practices need quite a lot of work to improve. So, it's always going to have to be a proactive, um, continued improvement. And you know, what we're doing now is a lot of developmental work and actually trying to refine and develop new stunning methods to actually try to get around some of the issues that we have with the old practices that we currently have. And you know on the religious side uh, or non-stun slaughter side, yes, it's, it's, we can't be complacent. And, but the key to be proactive, I think, is actually working with these communities. There will be some solutions that just aren't appropriate for um, some communities or religions, and that's probably fine. We can probably find other solutions to try to improve things. And often we focus too much on the act of slaughter We also have to remember that um, what's happening to the animal all the way up to slaughter is very, very important for its welfare. At least in the abattoir, how the staff interact with that animal, how the raceways are designed, how they move up into a stunning or a killing box, and how that actual box is actually um, operated, these are all things that happen, whether it's stunned or non-stunned, which have major impacts on the welfare of the animal, and also the success of the method that we use to render them um, unconscious or to kill them. So, you know, it's always going to have to be an ongoing process.
0: And so, what what are you looking at at the moment? Are you still looking in in, the, in this field, Troy? Or
1: uh, we're still looking at it on the um, stunning side. We haven't had much work recently on the non-stun side. Um, but, you know, we're doing quite a few projects. Um, I've got a PhD student, Carlos, who's actually doing some really nice work looking at trying to develop ewe stunning methods for um, turkeys, waterfowl, so basically ducks and geese, which are very, very difficult animals to stun. So he's doing quite a lot of work there, mainly going on the electrical stunning side. We've just had a paper set for publication looking at for turkeys at least, cat bolt stunning, which several groups have looked at, but we've actually done some EG um, work where we're actually looking at brain activity in response to these concussive stunning methods and actually evaluating its success based on that. So that's coming up very soon. Um, we're putting in a grant very soon on the use of air rifles for dispatch of poultry, which you know, might seem... A little bit over the top, but it's actually something which is um, allowed under the European legislation and in the UK as well under the slaughter regulations, but there isn't actually any data on its success or otherwise. And it's one of these things which it just needs just a little bit of data to support it or actually say we need to refine the techniques. And on top of that, um I've got a, Brazil, a student in Brazil actually who's doing a study looking at dispatch of neonate piglets on farm. It's a big issue. Um, you know, What do you do with non-viable piglets which get injured or runt when they're on farm? Um, what techniques can you do to actually dispatch them humanely? And dare I say, as it's done currently, these animals often get um, hit on the head with a hammer or thrown against a wall. And we know both those techniques, if not performed correctly will result in suffering so we're trying to actually look at getting a hand on what techniques are used but also whether we can develop new techniques that actually can improve um, the welfare of animals but also make it user friendly as well and cost effective because that's the other side of it you know as scientists we often develop these fantastic methods but you know if you look at um, the field for the last 30 years there's been a huge amount of work done but a lot of them have just not been appropriate or um, would not be cost effective um, in a real world situation so we have to always be mindful of that mindful of what the end users are going to be it
0: has to be a very like pragmatic approach I reckon and, and also the you know what you're what you're doing or the and the actual focus is is seems to be quite uh, quite challenging like it's, it's one of those Things that we all, you know, uh, for people that are uh, that are not vegetarian or, or vegan, you know, that they might know the reality that animals have to be slaughtered, but the the manner in that, you know, people think about their life, um, whether they're having uh, fed on, um, you know, open pastures or what yeah. they looked at, but not actually the end of life and how important that that is. So, so is is this what you 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 fell into in a way, or you think this is the most important part of animal welfare science?
1: No I think it's you know it's a very broad um, approach that you have to take and you know I do do work on looking at painful husbandry procedures as well so it's, it's not just focused on the end of life um, and I do quite like looking at attitudes towards animal welfare practices both from a vet and also from a farmer perspective so we've got some work that was published recently on that but um, you know most of my work has been focused on the end of life and that's principally because there's a need for work in that area. And when you think about the impact that you can have on the lives of quite a large number of animals, it's where you can actually have a practical, almost immediate impact if you actually develop a use stunning method or influence legislation that actually improves the lives of those animals. Um, It is an area, if you talk to the general public, they all kind of have an opinion or an idea on but in reality, they have no idea what's actually involved, and you know, I mean, this is across the board for anything involving production animals, because you know, as society has developed and become more urbanised, and we've become more disenfranchised with um, where our meat actually comes from. So instead of um, having chickens in your backyard, in you know, a town or even in a city in the UK, now chicken is something that comes in a styrofoam package. Um, and children identify with meat as being something that's on a supermarket shelf as opposed to something that's coming from an animal, which going back about 60 years ago wasn't the case. You know, It was quite clear even in urban cultures where the meat was actually coming from. And this is an interesting dilemma now because people are just unaware of practices, and you have a situation where people either switch off or they become hypersensitive because they're actually relying on information that's supplied by other sources. So if you get the case of, if we use religious slaughter as an example again, um, you know, people get very passionate about the idea of non stunned meat and also passionate about meat that might have been slaughtered for halal entering the secular market. Now, in reality, most of that is stunned anyway, and it's still using the same stunning method, but people aren't really aware of it. But um, it becomes a very emotive issue, and you know people start commenting on things which they don't actually have a general understanding of what's involved. And in some ways, it becomes a negative spiral, and we don't actually get anything that's any... Um, any proactive action actually happening, improving things. So it's an interesting area. Everyone's got an opinion on it, but there's not a lot of knowledge on what's involved and what's happens. So you know, there's quite a bit of gaps there for up.
0: So when you're in, involved in research, what what is the aspect of it that you that you enjoy? Is it is it answering the question, or is it is it data data analysis, um, or is it actually data data gathering, or is it the whole the
1: whole part? It's it's a bit of It's a mix of everything, but I like to think of myself as a hands-on scientist. So I I do actually like getting involved in the research. I do like posing the question, but actually performing the science and running the experiments, designing equipment, I I have a real passion for. When it comes to the analysis, you know, the real... um, amazing moment is actually when you find a result or you find something that's surprising and you know I think as scientists that's what most of us strive for so it's a mixture of the hands-on doing the work but also doing the data processing now I struggle a bit more for writing up as many people do um, and that's something as scientists we always do struggle with because um, often you race to actually do the work you race to analyze it and then you find the findings and sometimes Life lecturing other things take over, and you're a bit slow in putting out the papers or getting the message out. So, um, you know, I'm guilty of being a bit signed out. So I have to pick my game up a little bit on that side of things.
0: Fair, fair enough. And you talked about the, obviously the stunning and understanding in in c- cattle as as well as doing some work in other other species. Are there are there species yet that you that you haven't worked at uh, worked in for? <laughs>
1: Well, um, yeah, I think there's big challenges with regard to um animal welfare and fish, and I think it's something which is going to develop in in a general field um over the next few years now that's both from the idea of um, perception of pain, and there's been some really good work that has been done on fat and also the idea of consciousness in these animals but also looking at what we do at the end of their lives so we do have stunning systems for fish but you know we don't really have a good understanding of what consciousness is in these animals and what is the best way of rendering them unconscious so you know i think this is an era which is going to develop and this can be for farm fish but probably the bigger challenge is actually going to be what do we do with wild caught fish because at least in the immediate future um if you look at the number of animals that are caught and processed, wild caught fish are probably the largest, um, and farm fish, although significant, um, you know we're we're talking about you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of fish caught annually, wildly. So, you know, I think that's an area which needs a lot of development, um, and so that's something I'd like to get my teeth sunk into.
0: It sounds like a a, a a massive field, but I know I know um, exactly what you, you mean. mean. Was at a at a market in another country uh, recently, a fish market, and seeing how that like the fish were gasping as it as it were on the on the display, and how it's not in in a way that's un, uncomfortable um, for well for me to look at. I, I can understand why people you know display fish that are uh, fresh in commas. but but could you imagine the uproar if that was a a lamb or a, yeah, exactly. or or, or, a, or a chicken you know that would, you know people would obviously you know, react strongly to that but but why you know why? <laughs> why why would we why would we accept that that's you know a, an uncomfortable truth if you like for for fish but but we would be we would be you know definitely unaccepting if that was other other species so i think that's a
1: that's i think that's a key point because um you know if you look at the different animal taxes, um, people more closely associate with um, species that are generally closer or cute and cuddly. So sheep, cattle, um, anything with kind of dark eyes, you know, it brings out that awe. And generally a focus towards mammals, the exception being obviously what we do to rodents, um, which we have done work on as well. Um, But then when you start getting to things like poultry, um, even though there is a lot of great work that has been done and ongoing on trying to improve our understanding of um, their consciousness and ways of improving welfare both on farm and at slaughter um, they don't catch the public imagination as the other species um, livestock species actually do and if you go down to fish It's even more extreme. So, you know, people don't even class fish as animals uh, if you talk to the general public. So you just have to look at the number of vegetarians who eat fish. I'm a vegetarian, but I eat fish. You you hear this. and reality, they are still animals. And, you know, they do have a brain. They do have neuroapparatus. They do respond to external stimuli. Um, Some of them have been shown to modify their behavior in response to different stresses, which would suggest a higher level... Um, function, functioning, or consciousness, so you know, it's 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 an interesting one, and it's one of these questions: whether um, instead of being public-driven, in the case of fish, whether it's something which um, charities or governments will actually have to do on public behalf and for public good to actually look at this as an issue.
0: I was watching the uh, the Blue Planet, the new new version of it, and it had a, a fish that it was using a tool to to break a, break a shell open, and and you, yeah, you know, there's there's definitely some intelligence, no matter which way you look at it, uh, for for that to occur. So obviously, they they you know a sensation, some sort of sensation, must be uh, applicable to their environment, right? Exactly. Like it, it, it wouldn't, yeah. You, know, you probably don't need to be a scientist to say <laughs> that, you know, that 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 uh, that, that that's occurred. Um, and so, in in your in your field, or even in a broader sense, right, what 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 sort of questions would you think you would like to answer?
1: Well, I'm very much um, an applied scientist, so for me, the focus is always what's going to happen out in the field. So, as as opposed to more theoretical pie scientists, where it's a more fundamental question, I'm more focused on how I can make practical improvements for the lives of animals. Whether they're at the end of their lives, or whether it's on farm, or whether it's out in the oceans, or on a tuna boat, um, you know the questions for me moving forward is, it's always been the same one: is how can I improve it? Whether it's refinement or development, you know there's some interesting work that's happening now, not from us but from other groups, actually looking at use stunning practices for poultry, and that now is probably going to merge over to other species and red meat species, and I think we just constantly have to keep reassessing what we're actually using both on farm if you're looking at some of the painful husbandry procedures redefining why we're doing these and whether there's alternatives but also whether we can do them better but also at the stunning slaughter side of things and seeing whether we can improve practices so you know, I don't have a central question but I have a central drive and that drive is to improve practice so that's kind of what gets me up in the morning so that's what my focus is
0: and uh, and obviously you've been been here for a little bit of time. as in in the, in the UK, is 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 uh, um, what is it is it the the say the RVC that you you enjoyed to, to to work at, or would there be drive to to go back to the land of the long white cloud?
1: Well, every so often it comes up, but you know we're very happy. Um, you know I've got a young family over here, so we've got two kids. Um, but I really do like working at the RVC. Um, you know, it's a very small institution, so it doesn't have some of the benefits which a large, working at a large university does have, but um, it definitely makes up with that with regard to um, the atmosphere, and, you know, I like working with the students, you know, I I do actually enjoy lecturing, um, most lecturers actually do, um, for any students that are listening, Um and, you know, I, I just find it a very stimulating um, place to work. And we actually have really good staff here. So that's from the RVC perspective. And then from the UK perspective, um, there's just a lot of very good funding opportunities still in the UK. Even though um, scientific funding has changed um, over the last, you know, what is it, seven years, Um you know, things have definitely changed, but there are still opportunities. So for any up-and-coming scientists, um, the UK is still a good um, place to actually work.
0: Okay, and, and Troy, um, do you think you could give any advice or, or uh, ideas, I suppose, if there's any young scientists or vets or who are, you know anyone interested in animal welfare science of uh, uh, how to pursue more of a, a career in research?
1: Well, I think the key is just develop your interests and follow your interests. And there are always opportunities. Approach people who are either experts in the field or who are actually working in the field. So, you know, even today I was approached by um, an NBS and a different institute talking about some of the practice they do and talking about ways we can actually collaborate and actually develop some sort of projects together. So that's that's definitely one approach. But for very early career scientists, my advice is always just, Keep at it. Um, you know, people often think that you have to be um, super smart to um, to work at a university or to do science. You know, dare I say it's not the case? Well, I don't think I'm the example of that. But uh, I think what it is, you actually have to have a drive for knowledge and a real passion for exploratory discovery. And if you have that and you've got perseverance and you work hard, you can accomplish a lot. And in science, that's... Often the main driving force It's not so much being super smart It's actually just being a grafter sometimes And just persevering And then realising When you're going down a dead end And then adapting your practices So you can actually explore other opportunities So, you know, I kind of put myself In the grafter category Um, But, you know, it's served me well And when I look at scientists You scientists up and coming um, Those are the kind of things I actually look in, in them, And when I'm trying to develop them Because, you know, when you're doing science, it's it's a bumpy road. It's a roller coaster of emotion. And sometimes you have your highs and sometimes you have your lows. But if you're committed and you um, persevere, you can accomplish anything.
0: That's uh, fantastic, Troy. Thank you very much. So, just just before uh, I let you go to your, your busy day, um, I uh, I've just been asking people for. I you know we need to raise mental health awareness in in uh, you know, scientists vets, uh, ev- everyone. So, do you do you have any any uh, um, one tip or or uh, advice you would give to
1: that you, or that you use to to make sure that you're okay? Um, you yeah. know. For me, I think the key thing, and I said it in a lot of people, is actually just have a life outside of science. Um, so make sure you actually have a support structure, family, friends, um, whatever, to have something outside of science. Because, you know, science, and it's the same with veterinary medicine as well, um, you can very easily just get very narrow, narrowly focused and just sidetracked and thinking that what you're doing is your PhD or your BVET med is who you are it's not you know yes it's part of who you are but it's not defined doesn't define you and you know it's really important to have support structures outside of the science and whether it's family it doesn't really matter whether it's a cat <laughs> you know just have something that, when you go home, you can unwind and talk to somebody about it. And sometimes it's best if they are not scientists or vets either, because um, you know they have a different perspective on things. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you again so much for your time uh, today, Troy, and, and uh, good luck with your your future endeavours. And uh, hopefully, we'll get you uh, back on the show and talk about uh, what you're finding out in fish.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Many really, thanks.
0: Thank you for listening, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave leave us a review, five stars, obviously, would be great. On Apple Podcasts, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends or others, and if there are any notes, we'll place them on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Research Podcast in your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at dombarfield. Until next time, bye bye.